The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. If you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and open up to the book of John, the Gospel of John. If you're new in your New Testament, that's the fourth book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're going to be in chapter 8 this morning. And so cool here, isn't it, how God's doing work all over the world and, and how our church gets to be a part of that. Thank you, Ben, for leading us in worship this morning. I'm going to swell the rumors before I'm asked after service. They started a couple months ago, as you know, Caleb regularly leads the singing here. And then he preached, and so people came to me and were like, hey, when are you going to lead singing? And now you've heard Ben preach many times, and now Ben leads singing. So I'm sure some of you are like, when are you going to lead singing? The answer is, A, hopefully never. And B, if I do lead singing, it will be the first Sunday in our church's history. We will have YouTube worship because I can put together a great playlist and that's about the extent of my, my music skills. So thank you, Ben and team for, for leading us this morning. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be walking through um, a series looking at different parts of the gospel of John. Different parts of the gospel, John, for the next seven weeks, actually, and as we're, we're going to dive in and discover how, who Jesus says he is, and in light of who Jesus is, how that changes who we are as his followers, who Jesus is and how that changes, <coughs> excuse me, who we are. Now, one of the things I love about John is he is very upfront in his purpose of why he has taken the time and effort to record this letter, this book for us that we have of these stories that are true, conveying this information about Jesus. And he writes this at the end of his book in John chapter 20. We actually read this if you were celebrating Easter with us last week. We read it as part of our service. It says this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that's the Messiah, the promised one to Israel, and that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. And John goes through a number of different ways to point out that Jesus is Messiah, that Jesus is God, and the difference that makes in our lives when we believe in him. One of the ways that John does that is he has what he calls throughout the gospel here seven signs or seven miracles that he points to Jesus's work that he's done that shows who he is and his divinity. If you've been with us for a couple of years, you may remember that um, it seems like ancient history because back when we had to worship outside in the courtyard, remember those days? Um, Back when I first came two years ago, that was the first sermon series I ever did as we walked through the seven miracles in the gospel of John that point to who Jesus is. Miracles like turning water into wine, healing the official son, healing a lame man, feeding the 5,000, giving sight to a blind man and raising Lazarus from the dead. Well, the next seven weeks, we're going to look at another set of seven in the Gospel of John, but these are what are often referenced to as the seven I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Seven different times throughout this Gospel, Jesus says, I am blank. And we're going to look at these statements and Jesus's claims about who he is, how that shows he's not only the Messiah, he's also the Son of God, and how by believing in him, our lives should look different. 
Now, as background, before we jump into the first of the I am statements that we're going to look at today, even by putting the phrase, as Jesus puts it, I am blank, he's already making claims that his Jewish audience would have readily picked up on. That that word, that phrase, I am, already has deep religious meaning pointing back to the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, who he is identifying himself with. This is clearly seen back in the book of Exodus when this comes to to the greatest clarity. Exodus chapter 3 says this in verses 13 to 14. This is when God was calling Moses to go and lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. It says this, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This personal name of God, or I am, is often called Yahweh. That's where that that name you probably have heard if you've been around church at all, Yahweh, comes from. And maybe you're like, well, I've looked through the Bible. I don't see I am all over the place. I don't see Yahweh. How, How come this isn't here? Well, every time in the Old Testament that the word Lord is spelled in all caps, L O R D, in all capital letters, it's this name of God. It's Yahweh or I am. It's the personal name of God in his revelation with his people, Israel. And so even Jesus, by starting these statements with I am, is already referencing back to Yahweh and making claims about who he is. And this first statement that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus claims to be the light of the world. Now, the light is something that we all in our Western culture in the time we live, we just take advantage of, right? And it's one of those things, light, that you don't really think about until you don't have it. And then you realize how much you need it and that you've taken advantage of it so much. I remember this came to fruition for us. You remember, I know the winter has felt like we've lived in Seattle. It's nice to actually be in California the last like week or two again. Like let's live Seattle, their weather back. We'll take ours, please. But you remember back to, I think it was the first week of September when we had the record heat waves coming through the Morgan Hill area, 105, 110 degrees. And if you lived like I did at the time in that special area of Morgan Hill, you lost your power not one day, not two, not three, but four days in a row during that stretch of heat. We, we were the lucky foursome. So those of us over the four days in a row, we, we lost heat or lost heat, lost power because of the heat. We didn't lose heat. See, I'm still used to it being cold and we're turning on the heat. We didn't lose heat. We lost power. Now there's a few reasons why for our family, this was a little tricky. First, at the time, my wife was just a week shy of being nine months pregnant. Now, I have never been nine months pregnant, but I am told by her and by others who have that it is very uncomfortable, let alone when you are in a house where every 10 minutes you see the temperature continuing to rise towards triple digits, and you can't even turn a fan on because there's no electricity, all right? Not only that, but I forget if it was the second or the third day, most of the days it would go out in the early afternoon, but kick back on later on in the evenings. One of those days as the evening was getting approaching and it had come and the sun was setting, we realized... The, the light's not going to come back on. And we had, at the time, our daughter had just turned two years old. And I'm like, I don't know how to, like, I, a lot of my challenges, parents, is a lot of things. I never had to figure out, what do I do with a two-year-old when it's dark? Like, what do you do? So we just put her to bed early, right? Like, I'm like, I don't know, parenting in the dark. That describes most of my life, I feel like. But now it's very real, right? Like, what am I supposed to do with this two-year-old? I don't know, we'll just put her to bed. And I remember uh, that night, it was so hot. My wife actually slept outside on a chair 
I wanted to, but I was like, that'd probably be bad if I left my two-year-old alone in the house all night. So I slept in the room next to her so I would hear if she needed anything. And I remember about one or two in the morning, I was so excited when the streetlights came back on. And I was so excited before I got down the hallway to check to see if the AC had kicked on, the power went back out. Right? I was like, oh, well, okay. You know, light is one of those things that we just take advantage of. But back in Jesus's time, light was very different, right? It was a a commodity. You had to work hard to produce light. And Jesus uses this image of light, which is seen as we're going to see throughout all of scripture to talk about himself. And so this first I am statement of Jesus is in John chapter eight, verse 12. It says this, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the lights of the world." Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. God and light are seen in close relationship throughout all of scripture. In fact, in Genesis 1, the first recorded words that we have of God speaking are, let there be light. It's the first image, the first thing that God speaks into existence is light. In Psalm 27, it says that the Lord is my light and my salvation. In this gospel, in the gospel of John, if you read the first five verses, John introduces the idea of Jesus coming into the world as light shining into darkness. That light and Jesus, light and God go hand in hand. So our first, the first realization of Jesus when he makes this, this statement, which is our first point this morning, is this, is that Jesus is fully God. By Jesus claiming to be the light of the world, Jesus is saying, I am fully God. I'm not just looking like God. I'm not just representing God. I am God. Now, each of the I am statements that we're going to look at have deep, both cultural setting as well as Old Testament imagery, sometimes heavily on one or the other. This one this morning has both, both a cultural setting and a specific setting in which Jesus says this, as well as an Old Testament imagery that would come to mind for the people who hear Jesus say this. I want us to first think about the cultural setting and in the place and in the time in which Jesus makes this statement that I am the light of the world. We are told in John chapter 7, which is the chapter right before this, that Jesus went to Jerusalem right as the festival of tabernacles or the festival of booths was being celebrated in Jerusalem. Now, I know, unlike me, you are very familiar with all the Jewish holidays. You keep them on your calendar, but I had to go back and get a refresher of what this was. And so what this is, is this was a celebration of the time where God led his people out of Egypt, but before they went to the promised land, they journeyed through the wilderness. And so for seven days, people would go and they would sleep in temporary tents or structures and then go to the temple each day for special worship services, reminding of that time where they were wandering in the wilderness. Part of those celebrations in the morning was a water ceremony. And Jesus references that in John chapter seven. And then each evening during that week of the festival of the tabernacle, excuse me, the festival of tabernacles was a lighting ceremony that took place in the temple. Now, it's hard for us as Westerners living here in this time to appreciate just how much life in that time centered around the temple, especially in the city of Jerusalem. So the temple was the center of all of life, and it was seen, and it was the biggest building, and everything was structured and centered around the temple. We have a picture of it just to help you get a scale of the size of this building in the ancient world. You see those little dots that are walking around? Those are people. 
walking around. This was an enormous structure that was on the Temple Mount, so it was near the top on a hill in Jerusalem. The huge courtyard was known as the courtyard of the Gentiles, meaning that anyone from any background, from any place, could come into the temple in those large courtyards and could worship God there. That this temple was huge and all sorts of life and activity happened there. But then you had within the temple structure itself, which is kind of right there in the middle, it was kind of broken down into a few different areas. We have another picture showing a little more closer up a, a depiction of what they think it would have looked like. And in le- on the left is the larger courtyard. And that courtyard is often referred to as the court of women, which meant that anyone who was of Jewish background, of Jewish descent, both men and women could go into that courtyard and worship God there. And it was in that courtyard where this lighting festival happened every night during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, within the courtyard there, you may be able to see it on the picture. There are four pillars that are standing in that courtyard. There are four pillars there. Each of those pillars, we don't know the exact measurements because of the, how the differences are um, in measuring things, but they're approximately 75 feet tall, these pillars are. And on top of them are four large bowls at the top. Each of these bowls held approximately 80 to 85 gallons of oil. And what would happen is every night as dusk was, dusk was coming and the sun was setting, is the priests would climb up, they would carry all of the oil up, they would fill up, so each thing held 80, so you have over 300 gallons of oil on each of the top of the pillars, and then they would have this huge lighting ceremony as these basically 16 huge bowls of oil are lit up there amongst all of the people celebrating in the temple courtyards. The saying goes throughout Jerusalem at that time that when those were lit, that it lit all of Jerusalem. Now, there's obviously hyperbole. It didn't actually light every single room in Jerusalem, but it was such an awesome visual display of light that it, that it captured people and pulled them in. There were kind of two purposes of why this lighting ceremony took place. Like, why did they just get up and light things on fire? What was the significance for them? Like most of these ceremonies that they did, it was both to look back at what God had done and to look forward to what God would do. And looking back, it was to celebrate what they called the light of lights, meaning that if you look at 1 Kings 8, which is the dedication of their very first temple, when King Solomon dedicated the temple, that it says that God's very presence came and he dwelt in the temple, that God was there. His very glory was seen residing in the temple. And lighting these lights, it was a reminder that God's presence was here, that he is now among us, that God himself is here with his people. It looked back at that event that had happened. It also looked forward to the great light that was the Jewish hope, that was their Messiah that would one day come, that God had come, but another light would come. Isaiah 9 verse 2 says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And so there's this huge religious ceremony where every evening this huge lighting ceremony takes place of a reminder of God's glory and presence with them in the past, his anticipation of one day sending a light into the darkness. Most likely the day after these ceremonies of worship, which went on for an entire week, the day after it ends, Jesus walks into the very courtyard right where those lighting ceremonies had taken place and he stops and he says, I am the light of the world. 
He doesn't just go about walking through the countryside and randomly singing. He goes after they've celebrated lighting ceremonies for a full week and says, I am the light of the world. This light that represents God's glory, God's very presence among you, that you look back and you remember that God's presence was seen here when the light came and dwelt in the temple. Jesus is saying, that's, that's me. God's glory is now fully seen because I am here. That in Jesus, the glory of God, his very essence is on full display because Jesus is fully God. It says earlier in the book of John, in John chapter one, verse 14, it says this, and the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt literally is the word tabernacle. It's the same festival they were, that, God's, that Jesus came and dwelt. He made his living among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, by claiming to be the light of the world, is not just saying, hey, I'm representing God, or I am like God. Jesus is saying, I am God. The very glory of God that once descended on the temple that you just lit all these bowls to look back to, that's me. These bowls that you lit to look forward to one day, the Messiah, the Christ coming, who would lead his people out of darkness and into light, that light shining in the darkness, that's me. Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. I am God. I am the son of God, the Messiah who has now come. So Jesus, by making this claim in this setting, is clearly referencing and calling himself fully God. The second thing that we see in Jesus making this claim to be the light of the world is that Jesus is the one who guides us into freedom. By saying that he's the light of the world, Jesus is saying, I am the one who will now guide my people, whoever wants to follow me, into freedom. Like we said, so many of these um, I am statements have a rich Old Testament background and imagery with them. And it's certainly the same when Jesus calls himself the light of the world. As we were, they were celebrating the tabernacle period where God had been faithful to them in that time where they were led out of slavery in Egypt, headed to the promised land. But in the meanwhile, they were, they were living in, in, in tents and worshiping in the tabernacle. How did they know where to go? How did they know when to move the tents? Well, God revealed himself to his people in that season in a very unique way. It says in Numbers chapter nine, it says this. On the day the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and at evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The clouds covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after the people of Israel set out, and in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. Now, this pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night was the visible manifestation of God made known amongst his people. And when this pillar would move, the people would follow, right? Because God was leading his people out of slavery into the promised land, into the salvation that he had for them. And all their job was to do is when this pillar moved, you followed it because that pillar was God and God was moving and we were to follow after it. Now, if you're like me, you've read this story in Numbers, you've heard this story before, and sometimes the images of the Bible, I think, because we're so familiar with them, lose just the sense of awe and wonder about them, 
right? Like, look at that again, that God's like, yo, I'm going to be a pillar of fire at night for you to follow. And I'm like, oh yeah, pillar of fire. Okay, next chapter and verse. Like, hold up, a pillar of fire. And it's hard for our imaginations sometimes to think of what that would have been like, the awe and the image that would have been stuck in their minds for generations, those who saw God reveal himself as this pillar of fire, this light shining in the darkness in the wilderness. Well, unless you've been under a rock the last couple of months, you'll know that so much of the talk in our world right now is around artificial intelligence, right? And AI, and is it going to replace all our jobs? Or is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Heck, where we live, probably some of you in here made it. I don't know. Like, and I, I think it's a kind of cool thing, right? If you haven't used chat GPT, you're not cool. So I get on it and ask it some silly questions just so I can feel cool with the kids these days, right? But, but one, of, one of the cool things that I came across with AI, I came across it actually a couple weeks ago. And this week I saw something that, that it was a guy who, who took artificial intelligence and an art generator, and he put some of the famous stories of the Bible into this and asked artificial intelligence to make a picture or videos of what it thinks that this scene could have look like. And this past week, I came across a video of this guy. Again, this is artificial intelligence. This is not real. This is not even a person doing it, right? This is a computer. But this model of what what it would have looked like or could have looked like to have a pillar of fire leading the people of Israel. And I thought it was cool. So we have a video for you to watch it this morning. A little pillar of fire, right? Puts into perspective, again, that's AI. I have no idea if it looked anything like that, right? But, but this awesome image that would have stuck out for the people of this huge bright light that would lead them out of their slavery in Egypt into the promised land. It was God was the light and they had to follow. See, what Jesus is saying here is that he is the light that leads people out of bondage into the freedom that God has for them. But notice what he says in verse 12. I am the light of who? I am the light of the world. Now, we just talked about where he does this. He talks about this in the temple, in the part of the temple that only the Jewish people could go and worship. So what are they expecting? It's shocking enough that Jesus would claim to be light because they would get that. He's talking about God. They would think he's probably gonna say something like, I am the light to to the Jews. I am the light to Israel. But what does he say? No, I am the light to the world's. To, to anyone. I, Jesus did not come just to save a select group of people based on their ethnic or religious background. Jesus came to offer freedom and salvation to all and to anyone who would follow after him. See, what happened in, in ancient Israelite history is they looked back at this time where God led them out of Egypt into the promised land. This became the prototypical story of God's redemption from slavery and salvation to him. It became the story that just they knew and they told. So much of times in the, in the Old Testament, there's references to just, do you forget what I did for you when I brought you out of Egypt? And it's a whole reference back again to, hey, listen, this, this is what God does. He saves his people who are enslaved and he brings them into freedom, into the life that he has for them. The, the call on the Israelite people, as it was for us, is to follow this light. Right? Whoever follows after me will not walk in darkness, but instead will have the light 
of life. This isn't language of moralism being followed, but language of belief. Now you may say, okay, well, Israel was literally enslaved. They were enslaved to Egypt. I'm not a slave. We live, we're past that. I'm not a slave. So, so what, what does that mean that God leads me? Jesus leads me to freedom. Well, biblically speaking, Jesus sees us and that God sees us as slaves to the sin in our lives. That we may not be slaves like the people of Israel were to Egypt, but we are all slaves to the sin. We are held bondage to sin in our lives. And Jesus, as the light, comes and frees us and wants to guide us into the freedom that he has for us. This is so true because Jesus picks this up in the same chapter later on, talking about freedom from the bondage of slavery. Later on in chapter 8, starting at verse 31, it says this, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Ironic, because they had. But anyways, how is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices or lives in sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus is saying salvation that was brought back from the Exodus time, he brought them out of their slavery. He's saying, I have come to free you from your slavery to sin, to release the bondage you have to that, and for you to walk in this freedom of life that Jesus now offers to every single one of us. So the ironic thing was, when Jesus was presenting himself as the light of the world, he was talking to a very religious group of people. Right? They were there having just celebrated these ceremonies. They were a very religious group of people and they missed Jesus standing right in front of him. They didn't understand who he was. They, they missed the significance of him. And I think it can be the same today is that sometimes our own religious efforts, our own religious thoughts blind us to the reality and the truth of who Jesus is and what he promises to do for us. We become blind to just thinking, well, if I, if I do enough, if I give enough, if I go enough, if I, if I do enough certain things, then I'll have acceptance, then I'll have freedom from my sin. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. The only way to have freedom from this bondage of slavery to sin is if you believe in me. If you follow after me and what I have done for you, that I came and I have freed you from your sin by paying for it on the cross, and that freedom of life is not found in any moralism or any good behavior on our part, it's found in trusting and following after Jesus Christ, and that is the only way that we can have freedom from our sin. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Just as this pillar led the people out of bondage to slavery and to freedom, I have come because people are enslaved in their sin And Jesus came to free us from our slavery to sin, to find fullness and freedom of life in him. The third thing that we see here in Jesus talking about being the light of the world is is the change that it now makes in our lives, right? It says at the end there, verse 12, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So this third point now is that Jesus gives us light. That Jesus is the light of the world, Jesus has come to to free us, to guide us into freedom. And now Jesus gives us his light. We now have the light of life when we follow after him. 
Jesus is the light of the world. And when we believe and follow after him, we are now called to be his representatives, to be the light in the dark places of our world because we now have the light of life after we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus. Think back to a different sermon of Jesus in Matthew chapter five. He says this, Matthew five, starting at verse 14, you, looking at his followers, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. By the way, Jerusalem was the largest city. It was at the top of a mountain. They were thinking of Jerusalem. You can't hide Jerusalem. It's it's there. It's the biggest thing. It's a city set on a hill. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." One of the ways to think about this, it's it's been said before, but it's helpful for me at least, is the light that we are. Think of how it's the moon reflecting the sun back to earth. If you've ever been in a place where there's not a lot of street lights or anything, you've recognized on a night of a full moon, just the actual light that the moon can give off. And that you don't need flashlights, you don't need to pull out your cell phone because the light of the moon, it actually lights up everything around you. Well, the moon itself isn't generating any light. What is it doing? It's reflecting the light of the sun onto others. And the point is that when people see your life, they shouldn't see your good deeds, your efforts, your righteousness. The point is they see Jesus at work in you and in me. It's not that they see me, but it's that they see Jesus at work in me and that my life is pointing others to Jesus because Jesus has given me and you the light of life. What prevents us from shining as lights like we should? If you're a follower of Jesus, what, presents, what, what, what prevents us from shining like this in our lives? Maybe for some of us, it's the fact that we're, we're openly living in sin, that, that we have sin coming into our lives and we're gladly living in darkness. It's not at all that we're perfect, but a lot of us are reflecting our culture more than we're reflecting our king to the world's that we're just blending into the people around us and we are fine with unrepentant sin ongoing in our lives. And that will dim our lights. We will not shine like how we should for Jesus in this world when we just are casual in our struggle against sin and letting it invade different parts of our lives. I had someone come to me after first service today and say, you know what's preventing me from shining my light? It's the anger that's in my life. The anger that's just there, it, it, it places a hold and I need to give that to Jesus because that's holding me back from living for Jesus how I should. Another thing that I think for a lot of us that prevents us from living how we should, from shining this kind of light to our world is, is fear. Is that we are held back from living for Jesus how we should because, because of fear in our lives. Right, this is true in our culture because it's not just neutral towards Christianity. Our culture is negative towards Christians and towards following after Jesus. And so it's easy to be fearful and to back down and to not shine how we should. But if you're like me, man, are you good at self-justifying this and how you live your life? I am. I'm really good at self-justification of why I'm fearful and shouldn't live the way that God has called me to. One of the ways that I I do this, and I I kind of self-justify this in my own mind, is I'm just going to live a certain way, but I'm not going to actually talk about Jesus to others. And we we can couch this in sometimes religious language. There's a quote that's gone around for many years. It's referenced back to St. Francis of Assisi. It says, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Now, there's a couple of big problems with this. First, St. Francis of Assisi never said this. 
right? He never said this. Like Abraham Lincoln once said, don't believe everything you read on the internet. That's a joke. Y'all awake? Okay, making sure, making sure, right? Right, he, he never said it, right? Now, he did say that when we preach to make sure that it matches the practice of our lives, but his point is when you preach, not if, but when it should match how you live your life, right? We all get that. If you're a jerk to your friends, a horrible employee, and a nasty person, and then you're like, oh, but Jesus loves you and has a better life for you, people are gonna be like, I don't think so, because I don't want your life. Like, I, I don't want what you're serving, Right? Our lives have to match the message of transformation that Jesus gives us. The second reason why that quote is, is misleading is that it's always necessary to use words. Right? It's always necessary for us to give words to the hope of the change that is in our lives. This is even a challenge for me and in my life with others. You know, one of the things that I've realized, especially out here in this area, is that people have like no concept and idea of what pastors do. And so when I meet someone who's not a church-going person and doesn't have a religious background, and here's I'm a pastor, like the assumption in their mind is like, I wake up in the morning, I read the Bible for 16 hours, and then I go to bed at night, right? They're like, this person has no life. All they do is like read the Bible and pray all day long, right? Which I'm like, maybe I should do that more. I don't know. But so, so I'm always like, hey, I want to show you that like, I'm a normal person. Let's talk about basketball. Let's talk about football. Let's talk about your family. Let's talk about traveling. Let's talk about normal everyday life things. And my temptation can be, oh, I enjoy talking about those things. And so I'll just talk about that, but I'll never guide the conversation back to Jesus because I don't want to become across weird that I'm a pastor. And it's easy for me to justify in my own mind, oh, I'm just going to talk about these things, but why am I not bringing it back? So often it's because of fear that I'm afraid to. I'm afraid to step out and to take that, that courage that it takes to, to switch the conversation back towards Jesus. It's a challenge even for me. Now, many of you this morning, when it comes to being the lights of Jesus in our worlds, are doing an incredible job. As I look out this morning, I know so many of you who are so faithful to God and where he's called you and living different lives for Jesus and sharing the gospel with others in every opportunity that you have. And I just want to say to you, good job and keep going. Because sometimes it can be hard because we don't see other people's lives transformed right immediately before our eyes. And sometimes it can be discouraging to say, is it worth it to try and represent Jesus all the time? It is. And the work that you are doing, the difference you're making in people's lives, you may not see right away, but for the kingdom mindset is making a huge difference. So, so continue to represent Jesus where he's placed you. But for some of us, we know that we're not shining for Jesus like how we should. That there's things in our lives, fear, anger, sin, maybe something else that's holding us back from representing Jesus like how he's called us to. I just want to challenge you this morning that whatever that is to repent, to ask for forgiveness, and try and live your life to shine the light of Jesus to others. That we live in a dark world, a dark place, but we have the light of life because Jesus has come as the light of the world. God, we thank you that you are the light of the world. And when you came, you've revealed yourself to us and you have led so many of us out of bondage to sin and self and into the freedom of life with Jesus. And we thank you for the difference you've made in our lives. God, I pray that we would be faithful in representing you, this light of life that you've now given us 
that we would shine for you in the dark places of our worlds. God, that we would represent you well for your fame and for your name and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.